0: Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. My name is David Breer. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about design in fintech and in insurtech. Uh, we all know great products in this industry and the way in which they look and feel makes us love them or not. But what are really the practices behind that? Who are behind those sleek products? And how does gamification speak to its users, really? But before we start with that, we want to tell you a few things that we're up to at 11FS and have a quick hear from our sponsors as well.
1: Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost-income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com.
0: Hey, folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. Okay, let's get started then. As always, I'm not alone, but today I'm joined by Lindsay Kistler, who is director of product at 11FS Pulse. How's it going today, Lindsay?
2: It's going great, David. Thanks a lot. I'm very excited to be on the show for the first time.
0: We were just saying, weren't we, uh, it's been a year, like over a year, and you haven't still been at the 11FS office because there's this pesky pandemic. I know. But uh, I'm sat in the 11FS office right now, but, uh, but we still haven't met face-to-face, have we? Yeah,
2: unfortunately not yet, but I'm counting down the days.
0: It's a it's a weird word world but uh, as always we're we're joined by some super duper awesome guests uh, making this fintech insider debut we have Dominic Holton COO of Dead Happy how's it going dominic
3: uh, yeah pretty good i think david thanks for
0: thanks for inviting me on no worries loving what you guys are doing loving the branding like i feel like uh, i feel like this is going to get into a real good uh, a real good conversation with you as uh, uh, on this topic Yeah, cool. Thank you. No worries. And also making his Fintech Insider debut, we have Eduardo Moreni, who
4: is a co-founder
0: and CEO of Emma. How are you doing today, Eduardo?
4: I'm doing fine. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Just a bit jet lagged. I got back from Siberia last night, so I'll try to be as sharp as possible. You got back from
0: where? Siberia? Siberia, yeah. Okay. I mean, that's not your typical holiday destination. So uh, um, uh, I'm going to have to ask before we get going. um, Was that like a visiting family type trip or what was the... Yes.
4: yes. My girlfriend is actually from uh, Novosibirsk. So it's the third largest city in Russia. But it's definitely, you know, it took me 24 hours to get back to the UK. So it was like a long uh, journey.
0: Well, let's hope we keep this conversation uh, uh, upbeat and keep you awake then, uh, which is good. Uh, All right, well, um, to get us going, we're going to talk a little bit about designing in the context. Uh, And within fintech and insurtech, I mean, this is something that organizations are really good at doing but maybe starting a little bit with the 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 basics i mean you're, you're both invited here today because the design of your products really stands out you know i should say between dead happy and and emma and actually Lindsay, for that for that matter the the work that you guys do on on 11fs pulse as well i mean maybe eduardo starting with it can you describe a little bit the look and feel of of your companies how do you how do you manifest that out
4: Yes, of course, like, you know, we we launched the company like three years ago as a money management app and before even starting, we realized that we had to look different to make a point and actually to attract uh, people via curiosity and word of mouth. And so we designed Emma as a joke, pretty much, Uh, it looks like a toy. Uh, The logo is a gummy bear. Uh, The app is completely like colorful. Uh, it says funny things and it plays constantly with the user by nudging them. And for us, that's been one of the main reasons why we've gained uh, traction and momentum and why we've, you know, sort of like built our own mini brand in the financial space, which, you know, is still like day one for us, but definitely having a completely different look that's helped us a lot in the, in the early days.
0: Yeah. And I'll come back to a, a lot of things on that because having... Having established that type of brand, having established that type of hierarchy, you can you can actually use it to have different types of conversations with the consumers. But we'll come on we'll come on to that in a um, uh, in a second. Uh, I mean, Dominic, same question to you, really. I mean, what was really the, the the ethos behind the brand, or how how was it established? Because that is really, I guess, what we're seeing coming through. I mean, it's not it's not the typical thing to have a laugh about, is it? You know, the uh, the, the life insurance side of things. So, how how did that come about?
3: Well, I mean, yeah, you're right. And and I think having a life insurance brand called Dead Happy kind of tells you a lot about kind of what we're trying to achieve, I suppose, with, with the brand and the product. So I guess it came about from some pretty poor experiences within the industry. So the co-founders basically both had, you know, experience with trying to buy life insurance or, or whatever, and, and I just found that the process completely bizarre and, and you know, just this, just so many things that we wanted to fix, basically. I guess in terms of the design of, of what we've, we've kind of set up, life insurance is, is essentially a form-filling exercise, um, and it's a pretty dry and morbid one. You know, It's a really, really long and, and quite difficult application process. And what we're trying to do is, is just breathe a little bit more life into that, really. So focusing kind of more on why people want the product rather than the process of applying for it. So we don't ask customers, you know, how much cover do you want, which is typically one of the first questions you'll get, you'll get asked when, you, when you're looking for life insurance. We ask people, what do you want to happen when you die? Which is the same question, but in, in, from a very different angle. And then we have these things called death wishes, which help people to answer that question, because it's a pretty tough question to answer. You, know, you don't walk up in the street to someone and say, what do you want to happen when you die? And they instantly know the answer. You know, you kind of have to prompt people to, to think about this thing. And and, and kind of framing life insurance like that, it, it makes it a very different conversation. You know, we have death wishes, you know, the obvious practical stuff like paying off the mortgage, paying for the funeral. But we have more emotional stuff as well, which people wouldn't necessarily think about when they think about life insurance. So it might be kind of sending the family off on that holiday of a lifetime or you know, giving a gift to a loved one, planning a wake party, you know, all sorts of stuff um, that people can can effectively do. And, you know, they can create their own death wishes, they can add as much or as little detail as they want. And that is the starting process for for life insurance. And it, it just completely changes, you know, the whole relationship, I think, with the product. No longer do you have this piece of paper that just sits in a drawer somewhere with a number on it, actually, there's a more emotional connection because you've spent some time thinking about why you want it and what you want to happen. So from a design perspective, I guess it's it's just a lot more visual, a lot more human, and a lot more of a personal experience. And then obviously, you know, we're called dead happy. So there's an element of humor in there. You know, as you say, death is, death is not a comfortable topic for most people. So, so that little bit of humor hopefully
0: makes it a bit easier for people to tackle. I mean, I definitely prefer to put it off if I could do, but um, but it's we know it's an eventuality at some point, don't we? But I think there's there's a few things in that, as you say. I mean, I um, I had the pleasure of building the first life insurance straight through process in the UK when I worked at Aviva, and um, what we did was we focused very much on it was awful, like tr- truly awful in terms of like the process beforehand. There was eighty seven thousand pieces of paper. Um, I mean, it was a straight through process at the time, but but it was focused on selling the product. We had Ross Kemp advertise it, being all geezery on some adverts about like, look after your family and stuff, you know, like very much like that. That was my Cockney accent, by the way, just in case you're, you're wondering about it. I've, I've offended any Cockneys out there. I do apologize uh, off the bat, but that's what Ross Kemp sounds like to me. Um, so being in that situation, it was about the emotional sort of bar to, to get people to think about just buying the product. But to your point, actually, and we say this a, a lot at 11FS, the move towards services and actually that ongoing engagement, that service, I mean, you don't plan for your death once and then be like, cool, that's done, like I'll walk away. But but to your point around the the normalization of the conversation, I mean, how much did you guys think about the almost, um, you know, you've got to be provocative to change something essentially, haven't you?
3: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, our, our, our purpose, which was kind of from the start, obviously, was all about changing people's attitude to death. And, and you don't change people's attitudes by doing the same thing that everyone else has, has always done um you know i think it, it's probably possible to buy a life insurance policy and 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 never come across the d word so you know we we have to we have to do things differently uh, and, you know we're not for everybody that's that's for sure you know not everybody likes our take on on death you know not everyone wants to to have that level of frivolity about it but that's fine. There's plenty of providers out there that serve those people's needs. I guess we're just there to offer an alternative to people who, who find that very inaccessible. And, and there's lots of elements, I think, of, of life insurance that are inaccessible. Still, the majority of life insurance products are sold through financial advisors. And there's just a whole load of people that would never consider themselves wealthy enough to walk into a financial advisors, advisor's office. You know, so, so the way that they are traditionally distributed just kind of rules out a whole load of people from, from being able to access them. So by taking this very different approach, we're, we're hoping that we're introducing the product. And it is, you know, ultimately we think it's a good product. We wouldn't be selling it if we didn't. You know, it's introducing a whole load of new people to this product, which which we think has a lot, has a lot of benefits for people.
0: Yeah. I, I guess, um, you know, wealthy enough, but also, uh, I mean, Eduardo, to, to what you guys do as well, like confident enough to actually have those conversations, right? So, I mean, how, how much when you guys were sort of looking at, branding, looking at design and looking at interfaces for Emma, how, how much that sort of, you know, it's not, it's not dumbing it down. It's talking like normal human beings, isn't it?
4: Yes, of course. Like, you know, when we were thinking about the product at the beginning, we came down, it came down actually to two words. Uh, one was like playground and one was like progress, right? Playground. uh, It's very easy. Like if you just go on Google and you type playground, the first image you would, you would see like a spark full of like toys super colorful where kids go there and play. And growth and progress was about, you know, money management, right? Uh, you wouldn't manage your money or look at your money on a daily basis if you're not there to actually improve and um, invest in in your future. And so when you look at the app, uh, yes, we use the playground in terms of like colors, tone of voice, language, and many other aspects in the product. Uh, when you look at progress, it's all related about, you know, graphs, and progress expressed in like, you know, progress bars or like events to build on top, like, you know, a simple like savings goal. But I still believe that, you know, for us that was more like a way to break into the space. There is definitely like a design that you can use to go from like zero to hundred thousand to hundred thousand or even like a million, but then to go to a million to twenty million, uh, you know, you need to like sort of like normalize yourself in a way or another. I think, like, one of the best examples like that is probably Revolut. Uh, you know, when they launched the app, it was, like, four or five years ago. I had all these, like, sort of, like, gradients. It was very, like, uh, colorful and um, and interesting. And now they've sort of, like, normalized the product to, you know, this sort of, like, plain white that anyone can understand and, and use. So I can definitely see, like, um, an evolution of the product in the future. Uh, but definitely to start with, it's really exciting and interesting to put on the market something that you know no one has done before uh, just mm. to create the sort of like um, ice-breaking moment or like whoa moment of like <laughs> using the app the first time. Well it's interesting isn't it I mean Lindsay we we sort of
0: see in the market and not just in the UK market but in every market right now just such a an explosion of competition in all of the, these different spaces so I mean how much do you think that is the then the case that almost the beachhead for any organization has to really stand out.
2: Absolutely. I mean, in in Pulse, we kind of have this like privileged vantage point on the industry and watching all the products come in as we evaluate the designs and everything gives us this perspective. And like design is so important to every new product. It's, It's almost like design along with brand is one of the best opportunities that any new product has to kind of short circuit the beginning stages of the product journey to communicate all of those like emotional triggers, all of those feelings that, you know, basically helps the user get through that whole first introduction part to what the product is without sometimes even saying a word, you know, it can just be an image or a color or something like that, which is, um, which is so massive in, in a crowded field and in a field where there's, you know, a lot of change and a lot of innovation, like Dominic said, like getting people, to really change their mind about a difficult topic or to get them to think differently about it. Like, you know, you don't get a lot of shots to, to do that. And, you know, getting getting in there quickly, even just with the name of the brand, this is the massively a speedy way to do that. And, you know, I think that what we see in Pulse is the brands that are the most effective at, at conveying their meaning quickly is, are the ones that really marry the design up to the core of, of what they're doing all the way down.
0: Yeah, and, and I think to, to touch on that, Point as well, and, and maybe moving beyond just branding, but actually into you know broader interfaces. I mean, actually, I mean, this is not a um it's art and science. Do you know, what I mean, mm-hmm. actually, great interface development is as much about understanding the psychology of the the people that you're trying to influence to do something. A- and actually, I mean, I don't know why we all choose to work in financial services because it's difficult. Do you know, what I mean, like nobody nobody wants to engage with understanding where their finances are. Nobody wants to engage with difficult conversations about their their death or, I mean, even like a raft of other things that sort of sit inside financial services. So, I mean, how, how much do you think that that sort of psychology of uh, of understanding your customers, Lindsay, and, and getting into that psyche helps people then start uh, gearing services that are really specifically catered towards them?
2: I, I mean, it's it's essential, really. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's like death and taxes, you know, money is, is amongst the most important thing. It's, it's the most important thing in your life that you're not thinking about. Right. I, f- I feel
0: like Dominic, that's a, um, you've done death. You're going to do taxes next aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Cause I can see in, on that product roadmap, it, it just fits from a branding perspective. You've got to do it.
3: Sure.
2: All, of, all of those inevitable things, but, um, no, it's, it's absolutely essential. I mean, partly, you know, you said, why are we in this business? And it's like, I think I think anyone who's innovating in the space is really there because we see how, how important it is. You know, that there's obviously huge opportunity in the space, but it's the opportunities there because these are such massively essential life things. And, you know, it's kind of so obvious. It doesn't almost need to be said, mm-hmm. but it is, it is so sorry, Dominic, dead serious for everybody to get these things right, you know, for their lives, they're on, on the ground for their families. And like, and I think like being able to lighten that with, with playful design, with effective marketing and brand and stuff is, is like both fun and playful, but it's also like at the same time, so serious and so important. And that's kind of like what we see, you know, time and time again, the most successful products are the ones that tread that line and, and combine those things together.
0: Yeah. And, and one way, I, I guess, I mean, many industries, not just financial services, but one, you know, many other industries have, have tried to do is almost gamifying the engagement process to, you know, the the sort of nudges to to bring people in, to engage with it, to uh, experience it without it being a, um, uh, you know, a, a real difficult grudge, you know, sit down and be serious for an hour, children, and we'll teach you about financial services. So, I mean, uh, Tell us a little bit more about gamification in the first place. Maybe, Eduardo, starting with you. How has this sort of come about and and how applicable do you think it is in the financial services sense?
4: Yeah, definitely. Like, you know, when we were building the app probably two years ago, it was like, yeah, probably two years ago, we we were looking at like an app that's called like um, Seven Days Challenge or Seven Days Fitness, which is like a fitness app full of like quests and badges that you can unlock if you reach certain goals. And we thought that that was like a super cool idea, and we just put it into like a financial app. In our case, the goal wasn't just like about gamifying to uh, you know create more engagement, It was actually more to create more retention, right? Because we are a consumer product that you open like every day to manage your money. and the more you stay, you know the better you will perform in in the long run. And so we really took all the core actions that we needed people to uh, take in order to retain more. And we put them behind like some like quests and challenges and so if the user uh, completes the quest we lock a badge we congratulate the users and we go back to the users with like a push notification and it's all based on really like really uh, getting to a point where you got one a full understanding of your finances but also like a full understanding of uh the product uh because you know for us it was also like the case of like okay let's build this product let's add 15 new features in and then users, they download, sign up, and then they only use one or two or don't understand the other, like 13. Uh, because, you know, it's a cause of problem for, with the design, but also because the product, as we grow, it becomes more and more like complex. Um, you know, even when you get like a typical banking app, you would see like 45 different features and you wouldn't know where to touch or um, what to do. And so I think that this was our first main attempt and is the most like long standing one. Last year we did another attempt, which was like a massive launch that was rolled out across the whole user basis, and we actually shut it down after like two months. And it was all, uh, it was called like gummy bears. So we were giving like a virtual coin to every single user that was um, doing s- certain actions, like. If you uh, open the app two times a day, we give you uh, some points. If you add uh, three accounts, we give you more points. And the whole goal was that they could use the points to actually, you know, uh, buy or purchase um, some items from our store. So we're giving like PlayStation 5, AirPods or a few other like, um, you know, opportunities there. Um, It definitely didn't work in the way we expected, but I think that there is like an opportunity to go back to it. But definitely on our side, we're always constantly pushing and seeing and trying to put in the product like things that are completely unrelated to financial services, uh, simply because, you know, when you look at it, money management is a boring thing that most of us don't want to do. And we need to give you a reason to actually perform those actions on a day-to-day basis. It's difficult, isn't it? There's a there's
0: a real fine line behind, um, I mean, we will sort of say, I mean, it's like anything, right? You you want to incentivize the behaviors that lead to the right outcome. And actually by doing that, do people just get obsessed with those behaviors rather than the outcome? And it's difficult, isn't it? Humans are weird and wonderful things, aren't they? They'll do very bizarre things that you didn't expect them to when you put a product in their hands, which is uh, why testing is always so so entertaining, isn't it? But um, I think it's interesting with the gamification one. And I've had kind of lots of conversations with, um, uh, you know, bank CEOs with it. It's like, kids love computer games. Can't we make financial services fun like computer games? And it's like, It's not how it works. You know, like, are you not going to get that level of engagement in order to, you know, make financial services fun? And really, making financial services fun isn't really the aim. It's about making it digestible, you know. And uh, I think, Dominic, to your point uh, before around the, you know, do I have enough money to engage with this thing or do I have enough intelligence to engage with these things? You want to break it down to a human level where, Anybody can understand these complex subject matters because, you know, actually, you know, whether you're buying, you know, protection for your loved ones or whether you're buying protection for your car or whether you're buying, you know, these are complex concepts that actually if you explain them to financial services people, you do it in a different world than you would do if you were talking to your mum. So, I mean, what, what do you think about gamification? Is that something that has influenced your thinking in terms of the way in which you
3: design your product? I mean I don't I don't think so to be honest I think gamification lends itself more to to products that have a, a fairly frequent interaction and obviously life insurance is is one of the financial products uh, with the least interaction that you can have you know th- th- Typically, like traditional establishment brands, they'll they'll, they'll sell you a policy that lasts for twenty five years and and hope to never talk to you ever again. It's it's a sort of a it's a single
0: claims policy, isn't it? Really, you know, there's exactly. that, you yeah. struggle with yeah. multiple <laughs> claims on it.
3: But yeah, so so the only interaction you have, obviously, is is the is the cash leaving your your bank account every month. Um, you know, I guess we we've talked about maybe there is an, a, a role to play for gamification in in kind of encouraging retention. Because, you know, life insurance is, is probably one of the first things that you, under financial stress, you think, actually, what value am I getting out of this? But, you know, it, it, we still believe it's a very important product. And I guess that kind of speaks to, to how we frame it in the first place is, is, you know, it's not a piece of paper sitting in a drawer that you don't see any value attached to. It's, it's these kind of death wishes that you have this emotional connection with. And you know, we we don't want to sell someone a policy and, and for them to disappear and never talk to them ever again. We want to have regular interaction with them, but how regular can that really be? You know, we don't we don't expect people to, to want to think about their death every day or every week or anything, but but maybe once a year or something is is good enough. And so you know, we want we want to be constantly well, not constantly but annually checking in with with customers uh, and just making sure that you know their death wishes are still relevant for them, that their life hasn't changed. their their lifestyle hasn't changed you know that would would potentially you know there are things that happen in people's lives that that mean the cost of life insurance could come down like you know if you give up smoking or or if you had this illness five years ago which is no longer affecting you actually your price could come down so so we want customers to be able to benefit from those kind of stuff so you know it's not really gamification as such but um you know there's certain some kind of element of that kind of frequency of interaction that that we want to build into our product i suppose
0: Yeah, sort of reinforcement of meaning, isn't there? Isn't that in that, uh, and almost the emotional triggers that have created the the feeling of needing the type of product, reinforcing those things, makes a great deal of sense. Uh, I mean, Lindsay, you you must have seen lots of different uh, attempts at gamification within the the financial sense, but I mean, how how do you sort of feel about it more broadly? Because I mean, it, gamification is not a thing in isolation, is it? It's not like uh, we're building this feature just purely for gamifications purposes. It actually sort of folds into a, a broader set of capabilities that people have at their fingertips, I guess.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the first thing that jumps to my mind, and you and I were talking on Slack about this, I think just yesterday, was the Google Doodle for the Olympics mm. of the little video game, you know, and you start out as a cat and you go skateboarding and everything. And it's, it, it was really fun, first of all. But also it, it was just... It reminded me of it because I was thinking, like, games and video games, especially at this point in time, have such a strong visual language. It's almost like there were no instructions when you started that Google Doodle. People understand how to do video games now. And it's, I was thinking about how that applies to our kinds of um, fintech and insurtech digital products. It's like you don't necessarily have to build a game to use the metaphors from games, especially video games, in a digital product. There's like this whole Established pa- set of patterns of like discovery and even the illusion of points or doing different things that means that you can kind of lean on that visual language that that established visual language to kind of lead people into a really natural kind of product discovery. And the best products that do it do that in a way that both engage people, but also brings them and, and helps expose them to products that are better for them and bring them more value or more benefits.
0: Mm. I think there's, there's definitely something in that. I'm going to go really off off topic here in terms of the, <laughs> the, the, the view of, of what we're talking about. But, but I think there is something dramatic, really significant in that, which is, I mean, great design and great experiences are, are really a balancing act between the rational and the emotional. Mm. Like from a rational perspective, Amazon would just be a big list. Do you know what I mean? But actually, the the pictures of things is an emotional trigger. And actually, you know, um, websites used to be, I mean, I remember, um, I think it was version three or version four of uh, Viva's, the the website, the first website they ever had, basically looked like a Where's Wally picture. And actually, different things were in it, and you clicked on the relevant thing, rather than being a structured hierarchy of, a uh, you know, a navigational structure and all of these different things. I mean, it was crazy when you look back on it. But it was more of an emotional place for branding to be executed. I mean, I mean, Dominic, that that sort of practical, everybody can find everything and it's easy, or that rational, there's an experience and it's a branded experience. Like getting that equilibrium or getting that that balancing act between those two things must be particularly for a brand that has such a um, a, a um, distinct visual identity that actually must be quite a difficult
3: balance to get sometimes. Um, I mean, I think it is, you know, we, we do have both kind of emotional and rational elements to our proposition. You know, we, we have the death wishes that I, I talked about where, you know, you, you're trying to encourage people to think about what they want to happen when they die. And, you know, that, that's a very emotional type of um, conversation to have with a customer. But at the same time, we do still need certain amount of information to assess the risk So that we can decide whether or not we can we can ensure these people so there's that rational element of it as well so you know we kind of need to do both i guess we we kind of borrow from the thinking that the brain has a couple of different states that it can operate in with the first state being you know fast and and kind of intuitive um and that's where the brain wants to stay because it's easy to stay there but it can make mistakes um or there's the other system of thinking, which is it's more lo- more logical, but but much more harder work and and slow slow moving. Um, and we want to keep customers in that first state as much as possible. When you're doing the difficult rational stuff, you want to make it feel easy, even if it isn't easy. You want to make it feel easy. So, uh, I mean, a good example of this, I suppose, is, is from our sector, life insurance. You know, there's there's often lots and lots of things that we need to ask you. Um, in order to assess the risk. And, and what I've seen lots of life insurers do is, is compound their questions. So they throw lots of information into a single question because they wanna reduce the number of questions that you that you have to answer. But what that means is actually the customer's gotta consider a number of different dimensions when answering one question. So to give you an example, have you in the last five years ever suffered from any of these illnesses and then a whole list of different illnesses. And there's three things you've got to consider there. It's like, have I had them, had it? Has it been in the last five years? And I've got to go through all the different lists of illnesses? That's pretty difficult. So your brain's immediately switched to that that second mode and and starts to feel difficult. So our approach to that is is just to ask one element at a time, you know, so, you know, have you had anything wrong with you? Was it in the last two years? What was it? You know, that's just a, the same question effectively, but just framed in a very different way so that actually the brain doesn't have to move into that more difficult mode, if you like. So we use that throughout our, our website when doing the the rational stuff and, and hopefully kind of maintain that kind of connection with the customer, you know, that hopefully we've built through the emotional side of stuff and then by making the rational stuff feel, feel quite easy. So that's how we do it. But yeah, um, I think it is difficult for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we, we often say, I mean, the difference between digitized and digital, you know, a digitized form is just all the stuff on the form that a person would have read to you one-to-one and, you know, just putting all that on the form and going, yeah, fill this stuff out, you know, but actually the interface between the piece of paper and the customer would have been a person asking the questions one by one exactly as you've just described right so what would be the digital element of that well it's it's asking questions in an empathetic way it's doing it in a human tone it's engaging one by one and not overcoming people's brain with those things so it's it's funny it's what i love about a, a good design much more broadly is the rationale for it when you say it out loud just seems obvious do you know what i mean But, you know, we know this common sense is not particularly common, is it? But, I mean, where where does this sort of stray over the line, though? Because, I mean, there's... um conversation i had a couple of weeks ago with a, an executive of a, a bank and they were like you know we're really struggling with engagement you know we measure how many times people frequently log into the banking app you know and we really want to increase it and i, and I said it's like look if you just put cryptocurrency on i'll log in like 15 times a day to find out whether xrp is ever going to do anything you know what i mean so you can solve that problem but i guess i'd rather back to your point before is almost the knock-on effect of the that you, you sort of you might measure that thing, but that thing might not be the right thing to engage the customers in the way that they need to be. Right? It's funny you said that because yes,
4: we're putting crypto in Emma.
0: <laughs> well, your engagement's going to go through the roof, but like whether it means anything.
4: No, but again, it really goes back to what you're aiming to for. Like, you know, what what is your like main metric? Is uh, number of sessions a day a good metric to measure for you? Um, in a typical financial product like um, a banking app. That's definitely not a good metric. I would assume that the best metric for you is like number of payments done uh, per day or per week. And definitely, you know, if you are not able to define those core metrics and on a high level, like a North Star metric, so the metric that everyone should focus on, uh, you would fail at building your product, right? And so, you know, when you look at even like number of questions on a phone for life insurance, for me, it's really always like, metrics-based, could be five questions, could be one, but you know, if people don't go through the funnel or if they don't retain after like two, three, four months, uh, you've got a problem and you need to change it, right? And you can make all sorts of like uh, assumptions in that, right? In in our case, we thought that emotional was like a great way to start. And then we found out that sometimes even by misplacing like uh, an emoji in the product or a type of message that creates churn or it creates uh, and you know we would get all these like, sorts of like tweets, messages, and replies about these emoji plays in that position that makes people feel insecure about the product or they don't trust the product. And so definitely really it goes down to what you are like um, uh, tracking the product and what's the best metric. And that's probably the most difficult task for any product team out there. And I can assure you that... For 60-70% of the product teams out there don't know what they're tracking and you're looking at several different things and hoping to actually be that they are tracking the, the correct one.
0: Yeah, I think we'll, we'll come back to that in a, in a second in terms of that sort of evolution, because I think, again, to your point, products and managing products like an, a thing that you were constantly evolving and trying to understand the impact of your changes, That's sort of new to financial services too, but we'll we'll sort of come back to that in a second. I mean and I guess Lindsay, like we've we've seen almost the the conversation around, you know, friction be one that has continually sort of popped up in in financial services. And I'd say, you know, maybe some of the the sort of trading platforms have strayed over the too far into making it too easy for people to to not only buy products but but necessarily become a little bit obsessed with the performance of those products. You know, the best advice always with shares is like buy it and leave it as long as you can to, you know, actually get benefit from it. So do you think there is, I guess, specifically within the uh, the investment space, I mean, do you think there are places where this is going a little bit too far?
2: Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think everybody has been observing the rise of the desktop investor, the kind of a desktop day trader, and, you know, some of the some of the tooling out there, you, you, you do have to wonder, is this too easy? Is this a little bit too democratic? Not that that's ever, you know, the, the thing you'd start with, but it reminds me a little bit of something I was reading about recently, um, which I've been thinking about even in my own product design is that you have the parts of your brain that are focused on positivity on reward and pleasure and happiness and which that fall under the umbrella of, of like, positive feelings. And all of those are, it's a little bit like the fast and slow systems of the brain that Dominic was just referencing as well. And when you're thinking, when you're, when you're emotionally engaged on those happy paths, basically your brain is literally in, it's in a higher dopamine state. It's in a higher reward state. It's, you know, you're kind of, you're hitting the coins, you know, in the in the video game you know all of that's all happening in a way that's kind of positively and affirming and ratcheting and when you have negative feelings um when you have um doubt when you get hit by a lot of questions or when you get hit by uh you know a question about you know tell us about what you want to happen when you die or you tell us like a thing like that your brain kind of goes into this other mode and and, and then what, what what's called I guess the the negative affective with an a system which is a whole set of things and it's not as it's not as easy to understand as the happy one but what's the fascinating thing, and I will get there, I'm terribly sorry about the rambling. The, the fascinating thing about the negative affective system is that it is associated with more confidence in your thinking than the other one. So people doubt themselves less when they're sad than when they're happy. And and it took me, I had to read this several times for it to fully sink in. And I was thinking about how like when you are in, in a kind of more, it's like cold light of day you know when you're in that kind of more sober reflective sometimes even um in the article i was reading even a bit more you know kind of solemn state you you get much more confident in your thinking processes and you take more time on it um and when you're in that kind of happy mode you can sometimes just breeze past all of those checks and you end up in a place where you kind of end up a little bit sugar high and a bit overexcited about everything.
0: It's interesting, you know, stimulus for decision making, thought processes and different mental states of those things. And actually the influence that, and isn't that an amazing, is an amazing thing. You know, actually you sort of think, you know, the work that we all do can trigger those things in people in such Mm. an amazing way. It's, uh, it is amazing. Maybe (laughs) I've talked myself around then. I think you've convinced me, Lindsay, we'll stay working in financial (laughs) services. Uh, And on that note, we better uh, take a little bit of a break and we'll be back with you very shortly. But before we do move to the break, we'd love to get you, our lovely listeners, much, much, much more involved in the episodes of Fintech Insider. And to do it, we're going a bit old school on this one. Um, We've set up a Fintech Insider answer machine. So if you want to hit us up with any questions you like, we'll attempt to answer them in an AMA-style show in the next couple of weeks. Questions can be pretty much everything you like from styling tips from me on beard Culture or whatever you want to do to uh, Simon and how much he loved Pepsi Max, like really, whatever you want to do, just call us on oh two oh eight zero five zero zero six one one. That's 0208 050 Alternatively, if you want to tweet us or email us or send us a voice note, do whatever you want to do. Podcast at 11fs.com is the email, and we're pretty much everywhere on social media, so just find us on there. If you leave your name, we'll shout you out and play your message on the AMA show. Can't wait to hear what we get. It's going to be very, very interesting. All right, we're going to take a quick pause. We'll be right with you very
1: shortly. Customers expect more from their digital experience, and their personal finance is no exception. BlueShift empowers fintechs and financial institutions to create secure customer profiles and intentional, relevant experiences for customers. Whether in-app, on-site, in-branch, or anywhere else, BlueShift's smart hub CDP helps brands like LendingTree and ClearScore turn data into personalized experiences that increase retention, satisfaction, and revenue. Learn more about BlueShift at blueshift.com forward slash 11FS. This podcast is sponsored by WaveMaker, the industry's most open, API-driven, low-code platform for hyper-accelerating embedded finance applications. WaveMaker delivers a rich, drag-and-drop visual studio that fintechs brands and financial institutions use for rapidly composing serious banking and financial services apps. Developers can easily consume APIs and build in an enterprise-grade environment, leverage custom pre-built components with APIs, logic, and UI, or even build out complete embedded finance journeys that your customers can extend or customize. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.wavemaker.com today.
0: All right, guys, we're back. Um, so look, we've got a nice product at this stage. we talked talked about you know, brand, we've talked about design, we've talked a little bit about gamification. So it's encouraging people to do the right things. We're sort of nudging people in the right spaces to make better decisions. Ultimately, that's what we're trying to do with you know the products, the build that we're building is make people make better decisions, right? Um, but how do you ensure that the the product is really sort of light and easy to use? Because I, and actually, I mean, Eduardo, you touched on this a little bit earlier on. You know, your beachhead as a product is quite simple when you get to market. I don't mean where you guys are at now. I mean the first thing that you did to, when you went to market. And if you look at Revolut, you know, Revolut was a, a travel card, super simple. You know, the the impact from a information architecture per, perspective was incredibly simplistic in terms of what they needed to do. In fact, actually, when you look at the first version of Monzo, it was basic, like it was super basic. But actually, as that expands out, I mean, making sure that you balance out uh, the simplification of all of those things and how you explain them with the complexity of all of those additional features i'm sure you're trying to figure out where you put cryptocurrency into your navigation and how it fits into the broader journeys that you're doing right now but how do you manage that you know I mean, how do you manage that complexity and still aim to bring about that simplicity in the interfaces in terms of what you're doing
4: yeah definitely like we've been you know, we've been talking a lot about like design and experiences but i think that it always starts with like what goal you're trying to achieve and, you know, setting some metrics before even like designing the experience. Right. And at the end of the day, when you look at the development process of like a product or like a new feature, the design bit is definitely like, you know, 20% of it, 30, 40% of it is like the pre beginning, sort of like the the, the thinking about it before even going to it. And designs can be changed, can be adapted. It can be that you run multiple AB tests, on a single like screen, just to see if crypto can fit on that screen or not, and then you know at the end of the design process with the development, if the metrics that you actually set yourself they match, you know in in the actually like live environment, it means that design is working. Otherwise, you go back and you change the design again, right? But definitely, as your product evolves, there is a question of like, how do you make it as easy as it was on on day one? And I think that's the issue with. Any huge mobile app out there, uh, you know, I was looking at my Facebook app, which I still have, and it's just like five hundred different buttons all like spread around. And even in that case, it's still about it's still about you know going back to those very basic metrics that you had on day one and seeing if they're still like constant, they're like decreasing, or they're actually increasing. And any sort of like successful product out there, you should have got those metrics always increasing. Um, and so, yeah, it really goes back to really be be super analytic and metric driven. Uh, and there are like a plethora of like products out there that they can actually help you do and achieve your goals, basically. Mm. It's, it's interesting,
0: isn't it, Lindsay? I mean, we're at a point where the sophistication around applications is getting so great. I mean, honestly, I'm in, I'm in London for one of the first times forever. I went to order an Uber today couldn't literally figure out how to order an Uber because like apparently, since I've been away from London for a year, Uber's now this gigantic super app construct and it has everything in it. I could order a hamburger really quickly, but I can't get to the meeting that I wanted to get to particularly effectively, because they've sort of buried the core functionality. So I mean, in in that sense, you know, we're reaching a different level of maturity, Lindsay, now where when it comes to apps being really the the predominant touch point with with customers on this high frequency, you know, always on mobile capability. This feels like it's gonna be quite a difficult thing for 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 people to navigate. Literally.
2: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think this is where um where the the market's really going to start to differentiate. You know, there's been a kind of flush of of products that have kind of come in on a narrow on a narrow proposition and then widened it out. And now they're suddenly realized, hey wait, like it was quite good when it was easier to understand this thing when it was just one or two actions available at any one time and so I think there'll be a big differentiation that will really be driven by the brands and the products that understand that quicker and you know whether that's accomplished through actually splitting up uh, the experiences for the user or if that's accomplished through design or clever gamification like in the sense they we were talking about it earlier I think that can vary I don't know if there's a, you know I don't know if there's any one recipe for success, but um, but that's, it will definitely be a differentiator in the future. Because even as you go from, you know, that whole you know a one click and and car appears kind of Uber experience that essentially the company was built on that on that brand promise, you know, and then um, you know into this place where almost you see and just to pick, continue to pick on Uber as an example, where they seem to be buying to become a super app there will be i think a a massive whittling down basically
4: Mm. it's gonna be fascinating don't you think that the world is ready for like a super app in the sense that you know the generation that didn't know to use smartphones is already gone and now we've got Mm. like a generation that is actually able to use everything whatever you put them in front in front of them
2: oh totally totally i mean and and there are some amazing super apps like in in some markets i I don't know if we have one in the UK yet, um, and and many markets have have some incredible experiences. I mean, thinking about uh, WeChat in China or or Grab in Southeast Asia, which are just amazing experiences. But they also have very differentiated front doors for each of their services. You know, so if you you don't get confused about if you're going to get a car or a burger, um, you know. So so I think there is that thing where. Even within the company, the app needs to have the those different paths or or those different um, magic buttons for the different services need to be differentiated in some way.
4: Yeah,
0: I think it, I think it's going to be fascinating to see as well because obviously, I mean, uh, you know, Dominic Eduardo, you guys are you guys are fintechs, you know, in and fintechs in in this space. But actually, almost uh, through necessity, I wonder whether the the big incumbent organisations will actually have to start splitting these things out because. You know, actually, when you start layering, you know, eighteen different product cycles into a single application, just through technological necessity, I think roughly the um, regression testing for a big organization would be about three years at that point for, to get their app out every time that they're doing it. You know, what I mean, so so the, the the challenge there from a why can you know uber do this stuff why can Revolut aim at this why has wechat been able to do it Uh, i mean there is complexity in the interfaces but people can adapt and learn those things if the benefit of doing it is is big enough but actually if the technological underpinning nature of that restricts them from doing it we we actually might see insurtechs and fintechs pull away dramatically from the incumbents because of um you know moving away from that that debt i think one one thing that this sort of highlights really i mean in in this sense is these are new problems you know, and, and new problems don't get sort of solved by doing it in the way that organisation. The, the point that we just said about before, you know, you don't just put a life insurance form with a nice man with a briefcase and send him off to to people's houses, Dominic. You're you're rethinking how these things are are, are being done. But a big part of that is is the people who actually can think about those things, right? So so we talk a lot about you know, there's product managers and UX designers, but I, I guess sort of focusing a little bit on the, the the ux designer side of things um i mean do you think really fintech and insurtech has has brought about a a different type of role for for the ux designer because it feels more it feels more and more important within the organizations because of the importance of experience within those organizations as well
3: i'm not sure if i'm necessarily the best person to answer this question because we have no ux designers at dead happy which is a bit controversial i know And I guess the reason for that is that we think, uh, certainly at the stage of development of business, we are, specialist speeds will slow us down um, and speed is so important for us. So, you know, if you have specialists in the team, then if there is a a decision to be made in, in that sphere of that specialist, people will always defer to that specialist. And if that specialist is not available, then decisions don't get made. So we don't have, we, 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 try and stay away from specialists as much as possible i mean in terms of ux it you know it's, it's a circular debate we have as to whether we do need them my view is that everyone's a ux designer you know if you're involved in building product then you kind of have to be really you know and we're all we're all consumers of digital products so we all have some kind of a relevant opinion now of course some people are you know they have more design flair than others or, or some are better at, at understanding a process uh, some are better at writing copy or whatever but you know, I I just don't know, certainly with our business at the stage of maturity that we're at, that we don't need to have those specialists that, you know, at the end of the day, what is a UX specialist? I, I'm not sure I, I could necessarily answer that question. Maybe somebody else could. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not something we focus on. Well, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? And it's interesting you say
0: that because actually the the disciplines are almost the, the barriers between them are sort of eroding, aren't they? And it's why I sort of said about product managers to a certain degree as well is that actually, um, you know, a good product manager kind of has to know a lot about all of these things in order to be able to do them effectively, you know, and actually to your point, I think um, I think if organizations get so fancy that actually there's a, just a, a manufacturing line of like you do this and then you do this and then you, well that's kind of getting us back to waterfall really you know whereas actually you know product managers and actually there's the sort of I think almost product managers are the evolved thing of user experience architects or UX designers and they sort of need to have all of this in their, their locker in order to be able to do you know guerrilla testing to understand how to do that to not bias it to create interfaces and test interfaces and have uh, carry the brand from a from a tone and a structure perspective but it is interesting because, I mean, I, I mean I'm mean, i old enough that when I did my undergrad in computing, it was called HCI, you know, human computer interfaces. And it was like, yeah, we had to worry about a human using these things, you know. But almost the the trends of actually how these roles shifts and changes and what needs to come into the experiences or, or what goes off to um, uh, another discipline is almost a, again, it's a trend, isn't it? But, I mean, what, what do you think, Eduardo? How, how do you guys set up? What's the... Uh, what's the structure of how do you deliver essentially?
4: I think on this busy, I like two stories to share. Uh, one is an interesting one where like one of our investors uh, he runs like a consumer app and what they do is they just go in front of McDonald's, buy Big Macs to young kids and let them test the app in front of them as a really super like quick you know uh, way to actually see if the feature works. The other one is that I agree partially with like Dominic Point in terms of like you know having the need of like a UX specialist. But it is also true that a specialist is able to grab that 5-10% of, like, uh, knowledge that normal people wouldn't have. Uh, for example, uh, you know, once I was talking to a UX designer about Emma and our products, and and this was, like, two years ago, and one of the main points that they raised right away was, like, uh, accessibility, Right. I can say I'm good at UX, I'm, I'm good at products. The product works for like 90% of the people, but I'm not blind. So I have no idea of how, you know, I can make that product accessible to people that have got those, those needs. So there is definitely like a sort of like early stage startup mentality where, you know, you don't need specialists, but as you grow and expand and you run like a very big organization, so you want to get 99% of people on board, you know, that, that get everything uh, done. So yeah, I wouldn't advise to get a UX on day one like a UX specialist, but definitely as you grow and you scale, uh, there is definitely the sort of like need to take care of like every single pixel, and that's like a, a good thing. Yeah,
0: I mean it's interesting, isn't it? Um, hire people who have made all the, the mistakes at other organizations and can bring that to what you're doing is uh, is a good way of thinking about it, isn't it? But uh, Lindsay, what do you think? I mean, you've seen sort of a an evolution even with you know titles in this sense in terms of what people do and and whose task it is to be worrying about these things within different organizations so what how how do you think about that i mean and for your role as well how do you think about it in the the context of what you do because you'll step into all different types of things to to make pulse what it is
2: Mm, absolutely i mean i think i think the strongest case for having having dedicated ux designers is focus. And it's not that anybody has special secret skills that other people can't have or are magically talented in ways that other people can't be. But like, um, I think there's a strong case for, for putting putting some investment down as a business into saying that, you know, this discipline is something that we want someone to really focus on. And, um, and as a company scales, like Eduardo says, you need to really, um, you know, to start doing that to get serious about reaching the next level. I would also say, of course, that if you, you know, regardless of what stage you are with UX design, that tools like 11FF's Pulse are fantastic in short in shortcutting the design process. So you get to see, you know, the scope of the market out there and to see what's out there in terms of your competitors and also your kind of hero brands. Um, because, you know, all of uh, what's true of every role and every shape of team is that there's never enough time. 100%.
0: I mean, as you, uh, as you say, and as we have talked about Lindsay before, it's like, um, uh, and actually it sort of plays a little bit to what you are saying, Dominic, it's, uh, somebody's probably thought about the problem you're trying to solve somewhere out there. So, um, you know, still with pride is always a good way to go, isn't it? But, uh, well, I mean, we're going to have to wrap up. I'm afraid, um, the, the fantastic. Uh, I mean, we love Dominic and Eduardo. We both love both your brands in terms of what you've done and actually how you set it up. Congratulations with the the success of the the companies and where you guys are kind of taking it. Uh, look forward to seeing the cryptocurrency stuff come through, Eduardo. It's going to be fascinating to see where you put it. Uh, and fortunately, that does wrap up today's show. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people learn a little bit more about your companies? So Dominic, starting with you. Ah, well, just go to the website, deadhappy.com. Nice and easy. Uh, Eduardo, where can people learn a little bit about you and uh, and your brand?
4: Well, if you're in the UK, just type M the App Store and it's the first result. Uh, it would be the same in the US and Canada. So just feel free to download the app and play around. Very good. good. And Lindsay,
0: where can people find out more about you and uh, all the good stuff you do at 11FS?
2: Well, definitely pop over to 11FS.com and you can find Pulse under products. And we'd be very happy to hear from you and to set you up with a demo. Um, at any time.
0: Very good. And where can they find you lurking these days? Uh, Are you a LinkedIn or a Twitter gal?
2: both in fact um, you can find me under my full name Lindsay Kistler on Twitter or on LinkedIn
0: very good uh, as for me I'm pretty much all on Twitter these days so uh, uh, which is odd I kind of flirt between LinkedIn and Twitter but uh, but you can find me mostly on there now alright guys thank you very much for listening if you do like what you've heard then subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to leave us a review Dude, I was reading them at the weekend there's some super nice people out there leaving us reviews really frequently really love it but also it really helps. other people find the show as well so thank you so much for everybody who has done that keep going Uh, as always if you want to join the conversations you can find us on social media just search for 11fs or fintech insider wherever you want to find us or email us at podcasts at 11fs.com uh we do love getting the odd email it's always good fun thank you very much for listening everybody goodbye